15 today. And uh, as we continue our series right through this blessed book, I really have probably more than any other series that I've done in being here for 17 years, enjoyed uh, preaching through this book and studying this book and realizing uh, not just how filled it is with truths that are so important to us and necessary, uh, but really how modern it is uh, in the text and how modern it is in uh, in the practicality of the message. And so, First Samuel, we're going to be, I'm sorry, First Samuel chapter 14, I'm getting ahead of myself. I've uh, been looking forward in the passage itself, and, and I kind of jumped the gun. So First Samuel chapter 14, and remember what I, I said last week. First Samuel, much like the Old Testament, is one of those books that if you're going to get the most out of the Bible, you need to try to hold on to the context of the, of the passage as much as you can and as long as you possibly can. And then not to forget that. So as God goes verse by verse and line upon line and precept upon precept through his word, I think it behooves us to do the same and allow the Bible not just to interpret the Bible, but to actually be used to discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts. You see, if I read the Bible just as any other book, I'm going to miss it because it's not like any other book. Uh, It is the book of books. Amen. That's the Bible. And so. As we open the Bible and as we read it, I want to do my best to try to remind us of where we are from last week and try to take us into where God wants us to be this week. So 1 Samuel chapter 14, if you'll please stand with me for the reading of God's word in verse uh, 1 of chapter 14. Notice as I read, now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man that bare his armor, come and let us go over to the Philistines garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. And Saul, his father, tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. And Ahiah, the son of Ahidab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over unto the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side, a sharp rock on the other side. The name of the one was, uh, was Boses, and the name of the other, Sini. The forefront of the one was situate northward over against Mishmash, and the, and the other uh, southward over against Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over into the garrison of these uncircumcised, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And his armor bearer said unto him, do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Then said Jonathan, behold, we will pass over unto these men and we will discover ourselves unto them. If they say thus unto us, tarry until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place. And we will not go up unto them. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord hath delivered them into our hand. And this shall be a sign unto us. And both of them discovered themselves under the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they had hid themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. Jonathan said unto his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer slew after him. And and that first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 men within, as it were, an half acre of land, which a yoke of oxen might plow. I want to preach to you a message I've entitled this morning, Contrasting Faith. Heavenly Father, we come before you again and we want to thank you for your holy word. We praise your name, God, for the beauty of your holiness and for your excellent greatness, for all of your mighty acts. And God, as we open your word, we ask that you would please guide us by thy spirit into all truth. We ask that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law, and that you would grant your people, God, understanding of thy word. And then, Father, when the last amen is said, I pray that you would grant us wisdom to take that word, hide it in our heart, and help us to apply it to our life. I ask that you'd help me today, Lord, to fill me with your spirit and simply help me to get out of your way 
that you may use me as your vessel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. When we left the host of Israel in the last chapter, they were certainly not postured well for battle. As the Philistines were plundering the countryside, the Bible will describe in three companies that the the Philistine general had put three companies out, and as they were in camp, they were simply looking for scouts, and as people would come by, they would pillage them, and they would take their belongings, and, and they were simply just a scouting unit that were out there. And uh, when we saw them last, they were basically waiting for the signal for war. They were, uh, they were, uh, they were perched for war. Um, with Israel, on the other hand, there was no wisdom there. There was no strength there. There was no goodness uh, certainly, there was nothing in Scripture that would give us any reason to expect anything else but that they would be cut off by the army of the enemy. So it didn't look good for them. But in our text this morning, we find a power which works without means uh, and an infinite goodness which comes without merit so that the words of Samuel would be fulfilled that the Bible says, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. Now, it is only the Lord that prevented the mammoth armies of the enemy from consuming the fear-stricken huddle of the 600 and their king in Saul that were hiding under a pomegranate tree. And yet in the midst of this ominous and impending hopelessness, the Spirit of God guides us into the truth. And that is this, that little is much when God is in it. And that faith is the victory that overcometh the world. That God doesn't need vast numbers in order to defeat the enemy. He only requires someone to believe in who he is and to follow his lead. Leviticus chapter 26 declares, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season. A little farther down it says this, now listen, And five of you shall chase an hundred. And a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. For I will have respect unto you. And I will make you fruitful. And I will multiply you and establish my covenant with you. The only difference then between victory and defeat in the life of a Christian is faith. The only difference in the life of a Christian, between defeat and victory, is faith. What do I mean by that? Well, faith is the belief. It is the trust and the fidelity that we have to the promises of Almighty God. You think faith is important to the believer? Do you know I believe it is because the Bible in the New Testament alone uses the word faith 300 times. I think it's pretty important. I think if God were to highlight faith that many times, that it would behoove us to highlight the importance of it in our life that many times. God, what have you said about faith? Well, the Bible says in Jude that it is our most holy faith. The Bible declares in 2 Peter chapter 1 that it is a precious faith. The Bible declares in 1 John chapter 5 that it is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that your faith and hope might be in God. So I'm always interested when people said, well, all it takes is faith. Well, yes, it is maybe in some circles a buzzword, but for the Christian, it's far more than just the word faith. For faith is really nothing without its object. If the object is right, then faith will be right. If the object is strong, then faith should be strong. Would you agree with that? Now then, faith then in God, in a God that knows all, that possesses all, that can do all, is the key to every believer. And I want you to take your outline this morning, and our text shows us the difference between a declining faith and a developing faith. A declining faith, certainly you would understand that, that would be Saul. A developing faith would be Jonathan. And then the last one we're going to look at is a desired faith, all right? So first, let's just look at what the Bible describes as a declining faith. First of all, number one in your notes, a declining faith is conceited. A declining faith is conceited. If there's one thing clear about King Saul's life from Scripture, it is that he was consistently living for himself. You see, his concern was either with self-promotion or self-preservation. Now, I think you and I would agree that he was pretty much involved in Saul. 
That's what he cared about, either self-promotion or self-preservation, neither of which, by the way, please God. His declining faith is described in several ways. First of all, we see his faith letter A is idle. He is idle. Idle faith is a disengaged faith. What does the Bible say that he was? Well, the Bible says not only was he under pomegranate in Gibeah, but he was in the uttermost parts of Gibeah. In other words, he was as far away from the battle that he possibly could be. Disengaged. Sometimes that disengagement comes because of discouragement. Sometimes it comes because of distraction. In Saul's case, he had been told, guess what? God's done with you. Uh, God's looking for someone who's willing to trust him by faith. God's looking for a man after his own heart. So he's disengaged because he's discouraged. But he's also pretty distracted. Let's just let's just face it. There are companies of hundreds that are out in three different areas surrounding where he is. And they're making sure nobody gets in or out. They're making sure, hey, Saul, you 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 got to understand something. We are about to pounce now. That's where he is. He's idle. In Saul's case, fear and discouragement has led him to an idle faith. He is a rejected king in the company, listen, of a rejected high priest. Now, there's a reason that the Bible describes Ahijah or Ahiah the way that he is because of the lineage. Remember way back when we started with uh, with Hannah and Samuel being born? Remember the priest that was right, that was in those days? Remember what his name was? Anybody want to give me one? Eli. And Eli had how many sons? Oh, you saw that. Okay, two sons. What were their names? Hopni and Phineas. All right. And by the way, were they good dudes or bad dudes? Bad dudes. You can say dudes in church. It's okay. This is California. So they were not good dudes, right? Now, the Bible says because of how Eli raised his kids that God had cursed the line of Eli. Now you're seeing. Remember then when, when, uh, when God was judging during the war and Eli's sons had died and one of their sons' wives had a baby and the baby's name was? Ichabod, right? Ooh, that's a bad name. Well, this is the this is the result. The Bible mentions the lineage, and you find kind of a misery loves company here, don't you? You find Saul, who's been rejected, far away from the battle, and disengaged with a priest who has no priestship. He has no job, really. Saul's take he's done something that he shouldn't do. Now he is now he's partnering up with somebody who's out of the ministry, and they're both idle. They're sitting completely out to the sidelines. Not only is a declining faith uh, idle, but it's also insensitive. Letter B, it's insensitive. Now, it's one thing to be insensitive to people. Would you agree? And there's some people probably that at a given time in our life, we can be insensitive to the needs of others. All right? It would be a bad thing as a church to be insensitive to Phil and Sweeney right now. But there are some people who can't sympathize with Phil because they don't know Phil. So they're not necessarily insensitive. They're just ignorant. Well, it's one thing to be insensitive to people. It's another thing to be insensitive with God. And that's where Saul is. I want you to look down in, in verses 18 and 19, if you will. Um, now, let me, let, me just, let me set this up a little bit. Because of Jonathan's small victory, Saul feels emboldened. And now he wants to take advantage of what God has done. Now, let me just say, God has performed a miracle. Jonathan's gone up and not only smote them, but he's called a, he's caused a great earthquake. And the Bible says that the Philistines were so trembling that they turned on one another, that they started not only fleeing from where uh, Jonathan and his servant were, but they started to turn on each other. And there was a great slaughter. And Saul now knows, wow, the ground's shaking and I hear this noise. They see all the Philistines running, and he goes, you know what? Now's my chance. Now I'm going to take advantage of this to seize an opportunity. And knows how he goes about it. Saul said unto Ahiah, bring hither the ark. For the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. Verse 19, it came to pass. Now watch this. Now, now watch the timing of it all. It came to pass while Saul talked unto the priest that the noise that was in the hosts of the Philistines went on and increased. Look up here. What was the noise from? From them freaking out, right? The earthquake had come up. Now, as soon as that noise increased and he sensed then that it was going to be a victory that he could have. Notice what it says. And Saul said unto the priest, withdraw thine hand. Now, isn't that interesting? What's he saying? He's saying, I don't need God to take care of this. You see, his intention to begin with was, you know what? 
I, I, okay, I've blown it. I need to at least figure out if God's on my side. And I, I, I feel scared. And I think I want to do this again. By the way, praise the Lord for any Christian that says, I want to take another whack at the beast. It says, I want to do it again. Yeah, I failed, but I want to do it again. But woe be unto the individual that puts his hand in the plow and looks back. The fact of the matter is Saul was right there. He had an opportunity again to succeed for the Lord. But he said, withdraw thine hand. We don't need God. I can handle this on my own. As Ahijah is trying desperately to seek the divine hand of God, Saul senses that he may lose an opportunity for self-promotion. To rout the enemy and gain status, so he interrupts the process. He's insensitive to the principle of the whole thing. He's insensitive to the process, and he's only sensitive to himself. The fact is, the men of Israel took off, and they decided to go without God. You kind of sense a wavering there? I need the Lord. I don't need the Lord. I need Him on Monday because it's Monday. And my boss is a cranky pants on Monday, right? But when it's Friday, maybe after the commute traffic, that's when I need him. That's, that's when I don't need him. I can push pause like the old cassette players. You guys remember the cassette players? Remember the old dual cassette players, how cool those were? You could press one side and press pause and then press play on the one. And then when it was done, it would just click to the other one. How cool was that? That was the like greatest thing ever. That was continuous play before continuous play was ever invented. But... Isn't that the way we are sometimes with God? Lord, let me just push pause on your side of the deck. And when mine's done playing and I can't go any farther, then I need you. But at any time when I feel like I can handle this life on my own, Lord, I'll, I'll just press pause. He's insensitive to the Lord's grace. Thirdly, a declining faith is also not just idle and insensitive. It's also irrational. It's irrational. As, the, as they march on the enemy, they find them completely discomfited, that's the Bible word, because of the divine hand of God. God has done what God is doing in spite of Saul. You could say it that way. And, um, and yet, the men of Israel, the Bible says, uses the word distressed. It means that there was a demanding pressure on them that was, that was just causing them great stress. By the way, has anybody have, ever had great stress on them caused by a boss or some kind of leader that maybe issues out a decree or a president? No. Uh, something like that just causes stress. They were distressed, the Bible says, because of Saul's outrageous command. And here it was. Okay, here we go. We don't need God. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go out and we're going to go to war. And no one is going to eat anything until this is done. Okay? Now, if if, if you've ever been in the military, or even if you haven't been in the military, you understand that in order to fight a war... Not only do you need bullets because there will be empty magazines, but you also need beans because there will be empty bellies. So the supply chain, we used to call the bullets and the beans guys. They were the ones that had to bring it out. Now, the fact of the matter is, if you out, if you outdrive your supply chain, what's going to happen? You're going to die. You're going to die either because you don't have any bullets, as, as Elmer Fudd used to say, or you don't have any beans. You don't have the strength to go on and do what you're supposed to do. Does everybody follow me? Yet Saul, in his irrationality, because he is so worried about getting him his name back and being the conqueror, says, listen, here's how I want this to go down. No one is going to eat one thing until I get my victory. And he's completely irrational. So the men go out. The Bible says in verse 24, And the men of Israel were distressed that day under this great pressure. For Saul had adjured the people, saying, Listen to how strong. Cursed be the man that eateth any food until the evening, that I may be avenged of mine enemies. So none of the people tasted any food. Oh my goodness. He's completely out of his mind. Not only is he insensitive to God and insensitive to the people that's serving him, now he's completely irrational. He's lost his mind. But thirdly, a declining faith goes into another phase of declination. Letter, letter D, it's also irreverent, and it's found in the very same verse, in verse 24. Do you see how consumed with self Saul is? Notice verse 24 again. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had adjured the people, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food unto the evening. Now watch this phrase. Underline it, uh, highlight it. 
that I may be avenged of mine enemies. In that statement, is there any any part of Saul that's worried about the enemies of God? Is there any part of Saul that's fighting for God? No. There's no mention of it. In fact, everything that he says there is all about himself. Once again, we see Saul's ultimate goal rearing its ugly head. So, that I may be avenged of mine enemies. Even Saul's prayers to this point are focused on him and nothing to do with the will of God. You know, the Bible says in James chapter 4 and verse 3, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss or the wrong way that you may consume it upon your lusts. You know, if I look at Saul for very long and I try to find some verses that describe the heart of Saul and his faith at this point, I would choose Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. You see, Saul's faith has been in himself. Saul has been consumed. It's, it's conceited. A declining faith is conceited. And because of that, it has no problem being idle. It has no problem disengaging from the battle. Regardless of the reason, it has no problem. It has no problem with thinking of self. It has no problem with being insensitive to God. It has no problem being irrational and emotional and, and making decisions that have nothing to do with God. And then you get out in the middle of it and you go, what was I thinking? It has no problem that way because the declining faith is conceded. And then interwoven in this story, it's interesting. It's almost like a ping pong. It's like faith is the ping pong ball and God hits it over to Jonathan and, and he hits it back and then he hits it over to Saul and then he hits it back and you just kind of go back and forth. Interwoven in this great story, you see the other side of this. A declining faith is conceited, but a developing faith, number two, is courageous. In fact, it starts that way, if you will. The Bible tells us, and, and, and I think it's interesting to note that the faith that is contrasted to Saul's declining faith is a faith within his own house. Don't you find that interesting? It, it, it's kind of like, Samuel's faith was great, but his two sons knew not the Lord. It's kind of it's kind of interesting that Eli had the faith, but his two sons didn't. And here, Saul didn't have the faith, but Jonathan did. And I don't know if this it, maybe it's because he had a good mama. I had no idea. But the fact of the matter is, wherever Saul was when he started, it was not where he is now. And Jonathan never left where Saul was, anyways. Jonathan just stayed the course. Jonathan's faith was a courageous faith. We see how different it is. Jonathan senses the Lord wanting him to trust him and go up into the enemy's camp. Why else would he? It wasn't by Saul's command. This time he is only acting on what God is impressing upon his heart. And I may say this, you may do better instead of saying, God, will you please show me your will or God, what is your will? You'd be better off serving the Holy Spirit by just allowing him to lead you and to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Then you would be in the will of God. Then you would be making systematic uh, decisions by faith, not by feelings, and you would be allowed of God to venture forth and do something great for the Lord that you might any, you might not even be aware of. Here we note what, that Saul, while Saul was gripped with fear, his son was full of faith. Verses six through ten describe the stories we read earlier, and he says, "Listen, it might be that God would do this, but if it's if we're going to go up, it's going to be only of God, or it's not going to be at all." And by the way, I find it interesting that a courageous faith is contagious, also. Because he said, hey, listen, this is what the Lord will do. And the servant made the wisest statement that he's ever made. Whatever is in your heart, that's what you're going to do. And I'm going to follow you for it. He sensed that there was something about the faith of Jonathan. Now, let's just look at this faith. First of all, a courageous faith, letter A, is courageous to ask. It has the courage to ask. Lord, I want to put out a fleece. Just as Gideon had done centuries earlier, Jonathan laid out a fleece uh, trusting that God would give him a clear sign that he was moving in the right direction, unafraid of asking, Lord, if it be your will for me to go up, then have them to answer me in this way. If it's not, I'm good with that. Why? Because Jonathan is not seeking his own self-promotion. He's seeking that people should know the Lord. 
He doesn't want to get out of the will of God. And so he has the courage to ask, make it clear, unafraid of asking. I'm willing to go to battle and I'm willing to go with only my servant and my savior. Now, that's courageous. A Christian willing to ask the Lord that I will go, by the way, not even if I have someone to go with me or not, I'll go anyway. He has the courage to ask. Secondly, we see the courage to act. It's one thing to be in church and ask the Lord, isn't it? It's one thing to be on our face at the altar and say, God, here I am. God, I haven't been here in a while. God, I'm on my knees. I've sinned before you. God, it's another thing to walk out those doors and act on that faith, isn't it? We all know that. That's the challenge of the Christian life. When he got the go ahead from God, like we'll see in chapters to come, like King David Like others in the Bible, there was no hesitation. He didn't go, did 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 you hear him right? Maybe we need to check the message again and see what it says. No, there was no hesitation at all. Like Peter, he stepped out into the storm knowing that God was for him. I want to say this and interrupt myself for a minute. If you're saved, God is for you. Let me make another statement. If you're not saved, God is for you. There's only two kind of people in the world. Those that are saved, those that are lost. We're all sinners. Some of us are saved by the grace of God. Others are just not saved yet. And yet God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is for us. You say, how do you know that? Because there's a cross in Calvary that hung my Savior on it that died for the sins of the world. The fact of the matter is, don't ever forget that. If I'm going to be courageous enough to ask for the will of God, I must follow it up with the courage to act on it. The Bible says, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, then nothing or no one or who can be against us. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall I not with him also? Freely give us all things. Oh, God is for us. And Jonathan knew that. Thirdly, this developing faith is not just courageous to ask and to act. It's also courageous to answer. It's courageous to answer. Now, as God moves through the camp of the Philistines, they begin to turn on themselves in fear. As I said, Jonathan is in pursuit and he is joined. The Bible says by the other men of Israel. In fact, some that were even in the encampment of the Philistines and they all went out to to pursue the enemy, but they all didn't go out with the same information. Everybody knew that Saul had commanded that nobody is supposed to eat until the end of the battle, except for Jonathan and his servant. Now, I would ask you, that seems like a pretty important piece of information, doesn't it? That if the king gave commandments specifically about what the logistics were supposed to look like going out in the battle... That maybe, kind of as the guy in charge of the battle, I should know about it. But somehow, for some reason, perhaps it was because Jonathan took off on his own and by faith did what he was going to do. The rest of the army didn't fill him in. So now, Jonathan goes out. And Saul said, no one is supposed to eat. And if they do, the command was, they are supposed to die. But Jonathan didn't know that. So verse 25, and all they of the land came to a wood and there was honey upon the ground. And when the people were coming to the wood, behold, the honey dropped. But no man put his hand to his mouth for the people. What feared the oath? But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath. Wherefore, he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth. Glory to God. I love this next phrase. And his eyes were enlightened. You know what what that means? It means his body was refreshed. By the way, does anybody love honey? I love honey and and butter mixed together. And I don't know which one I like more, a little more on the honey side or a little more on the the bunny, a little more on the butter side. But what I do know is I love them mixed together. My dad used to call it lick dab. Now, don't, don't judge us for doing that. We were just a bunch of rednecks growing up, but... It, it, we would we would make that and just go bananas. We we would eat cornbread until we had cornmeal coming out of our ears. We'd eat biscuits that way. It was awesome. So when he says 
in that passage that he put his hand to his mouth and his eyes were enlightened, I know what he's talking about. You may do too, all right? The fact of the matter, it helped him, okay? Now watch this. The Bible says, then answered one, then answered one of the people. Boy, I'd like to just take that guy and go, why didn't you tell me beforehand? Right? Notice what it says. Then answered one of the people and said, thy father straightly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man that eateth any food this day. And the people were faint. Verse 29. Then said, Jonathan, my father hath troubled the land. See, I pray you how mine eyes have been enlightened because I have tasted a little of this honey. Now, I'm going to skip down some verses here, but I want you to hear a little more of the story. Through God's providence, Saul finds out that Jonathan had eaten. And he makes the irrational statement, even if it is my own son, he is going to die. There's no privilege with me. I will not have insubordination in my ranks. It doesn't matter what Jonathan thought. It doesn't matter how we got to this point. The fact of the matter is, if it's my son, he is going to die. The Bible says, look down if you will, in verse 41, Therefore Saul said unto the Lord God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what thou hast done. And Jonathan told him and said, I did but taste a little honey with the end of the rod that was in mine hand. And lo, I must die. Would you say that was courageous? I want you to note not what you see in the Bible, but hear what you do not see. You do not see. Jonathan dropping a gender, or a, 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 uh, an offspring card. Don't you know I'm your son? There's got to be like a special, you know, exception for me kind of, you know, being like the heir apparent. There's, there's got to be that. He doesn't, in other words, he doesn't try to justify what he has done. He says, look, the fact of the matter is I'm okay dying. Because of what God has done in Israel. If that's what you so choose. I'm not just courageous enough to ask. And courageous enough to go up and trust God. I'm courageous enough to trust God with the answer. I'm courageous enough. That if it is by life or death. At this moment I believe God. Like the Apostle Paul said. Now that amazes me. Because I think many of us will stand not before just a physical king, but the king of all kings someday. And I think our knee-jerk reaction will be, unfortunately, to justify. See, how do you know that? Well, it's in Scripture. But Lord, but Lord, but Lord, but Lord, but Lord. Have we not? Have we not? Have I not? You don't see that in Jonathan. You see a developing faith that he is just willing to say, Lord, Whatever you have for me by life or by death, by going into the battle, coming out of the battle, by standing in front of my father, I will trust you. God is the one that told Joshua, have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. I have to believe in my mind that as Jonathan stood before King Saul, he was standing before the king in heaven. And he knew that the final authority and the final word rested with him. You see, biblical courage is not based on personal ability, but rather on believing in the presence of God. And that's what Jonathan had. Jonathan's faith was courageous. Why? Because it was always developing. It goes beyond just let's just go up and get in the battle. It goes all the way to death. So we see a declining faith and a developing faith. Thirdly, what are we left with? Well, let's think about the desired faith that God wants us to have. And he wants that faith to be continual. Do you understand that? That God's desire for you and I as Christians is to not just have a faith. Or could I say it this way? To have just the faith that we had when we got saved. 
He wants us to have a faith that continues, not a faith that dies, not a faith that results in self-preservation. Well, whatever I got to do to save my name or whatever I got to do to make sure that people don't think me, I'm the bad person or that I'm unfaithful or whatever. I, 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 I just I want to stay faithful to the Lord. I want it to last. And, and, and the Bible describes that. Now, what kind of faith then are you exhibiting today? What kind of faith are you exhibiting at home? Amongst your children, what kind of faith are you exhibiting at work? What kind of faith are you exhibiting at church? You know, if if the Bible tells us that as believers we must walk by faith, then we understand that our faith doesn't stay the same as when it was when we first were saved, if it is going to remain continual anyway. Some have erred from the faith. Others have strayed and walked away from their faith. Their faith has died. But God says, no, 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 look. If I mentioned it 300 times, and if you're saved by grace through faith, then I want that faith to continue, and I want to describe it for you today. Take your, take your notes this morning. Let's finish this message up. First of all, a continuing faith or the desired faith that God has for us, first of all, is unselfish. If we step back now and we take the parts of Saul's declining faith and Joshua's developing faith, you understand that God wants an unselfish faith. Um, Saul's faith was much like that of G. Gordon Liddy, who said, and I quote, I found within myself all I need and all I ever shall need. I'm a man of great faith, but my faith is in G. Gordon Liddy, and I have never failed me. Isn't that interesting? This is the guy that was involved in the Watergate scandal. Okay, so the fact of the matter is, uh, did it fail him? Well, not according to his eyes, but according to everybody else's. The fact of the matter is, God doesn't want our faith to be selfish. And and here's Bible proof, Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Oh, look, and lean not unto thine own understanding. But in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. What we see, listen, what we see and know is limited. What you and I see and what we know for sure is limited and hindered by sin. Why would I want to trust that then? Why would I want to lean? The Bible word there, lean, means supported. Why why would I want to prop up my life or prop up every decision that I make as a husband or prop up a decision I make even as a pastor on what I can see or on what I can understand? God says, no, 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 no. I don't want you to lean. I don't want you to trust and lean on your own understanding. I want you to lean on me. Isn't that a blessing? Is anybody ever, I know the guys probably have, but how many guys in high school, you were in your chair and you'd kick your chair back and you'd lean up on the back too? You remember that? I used to do it at home too. I used to do it, my dad would be like, knock it off and you're going to slip and fall. And I think in my mind, there is no way that I'm going to slip and fall. There's no way. And you kind of kick back because you see it kind of cool. Really, you're doing it because you're bored and you don't want to pay attention in class. But you're, you're sitting there and you're doing that. And lo and behold, what happened one time when I did that one too many times at the table? My dad went and kicked the chair off from under and bam, I went flat on my back. And he said, you know what he said? You know what he said if you're as old as I am. There, now you, I taught you a lesson. No, no, you didn't. You literally kicked it out of my chair. The, the fact of the matter is that's what happens to the life that's supported on their own understanding. Some of us have been there, haven't we? We've gone about our making our own decisions without the Lord, like Saul. And we've made irrational decisions. Instead of repenting and coming back and saying, no, don't withdraw thine hand. Leave thine hand there. I got to know what I got to know from God because what I know has not gone far enough. See, what Saul knew was that his bullets and beans didn't need to go into the battle. But God knew better. And by the way, so did Jonathan. The fact of the matter is God doesn't want our faith to be selfish. It wants, we need it to be unselfish. The life of a believer is predicated on trusting God and at all costs following the Holy Spirit as he leads into God's will. Romans chapter 8 and verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally or fleshly or selfishly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. God wants an unselfish faith out of all of us. Unselfish faith is not idle in fear or discouragement or self-pity. Why? Because it's not about us. Can I get an amen right there? 
It's not about us. God wants it to be unselfish. Secondly, he wants it to be single-minded. He wants to have he wants us to have a single-minded faith. This is the faith that is continual. James 1 and verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally. To be fair, the context of this is trials. Phil is going through a trial right now. Franny's family is going through a hurricane right down in the south. And he's saying, look, I'm telling you that trials are for your good, they're for your benefit, and God's going to use them to exercise your faith. But what do you need in the middle of a trial? Wisdom. So here's the verse in verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. God's saying, ask and you shall receive. But notice verse 6. But let him ask in faith, Nothing, circle that word in your Bible, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he should receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 6 and verse 22. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore the eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. You see, Saul is vacillating back and forth. I want to serve God. I want to serve myself. I want to serve God. I want to serve my fellow. Self. 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 And then he tries to ask God. And where's that getting him? Zero places. None. He's not going anywhere. And, and pretty soon, in the next chapter, you're going to see not a just declining. You're going to see a dead faith. And the tragic end result of a life that walks away from the ways of the Lord. The fact of the matter is, God said, look, I don't want you to waver back and forth. Saul is one of those people who tries to live for the flesh and the spirit. And we all know that doesn't work. Double-mindedness, doubt, waffling back and forth on what to do, what to ask for, which way to go, is an unfocused faith. Like Peter on the water that started out up and then went down. Many, many Christians are like corks uh, on the waves. Up one minute, down the next, tossed back and forth. That's exactly what God says happens in James chapter 1. This kind of experience then is evidence of immaturity. It's never developed because the Bible teaches, listen to the statement, instability and immaturity go together. I submit to you as evidence, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children, listen carefully, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Did you hear the statement? Tossed to and fro. God says, I need your faith to develop. And I want it to continue. I want to continue in me and not you. I I want you to exercise that faith. I I want it to be about me, about my power. And I don't want you to waver about it. Now, look, I understand the cycles of life. I understand there are times of highs. There are times of lows. There are times where things are more busy than others. But God does not want you and I to let our faith be like the times. Say why? Why does not why does it why doesn't God allow for our faith to change? Here's why, because He never does. That's the great part about trusting in an unchanging God. Is that even if my circumstances change, God doesn't. Because of that, God's word doesn't change. Amen. That means his presence doesn't change, his grace doesn't change, his mercy doesn't change, and his love doesn't change. By the way, don't get the idea here that God doesn't still love Saul. Because next week we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that he still is in pursuit of those people who have a declining faith. Let us see the faith that God wants us to have as a productive faith. What other prophet, my brethren, though a man may say you have faith and have not works, can faith save him? Is that a real saving faith? James 2 and verse 18, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. And then here's a very defining statement in the context of this. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. What is that? That's faith. Well, the devils also believe and tremble. But what don't they do? They don't work it out. There's no work in that faith. What does that mean? It's not saving faith. It's not a real faith. The devils believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Now, basically, then every person's faith has evidence. And yet the desired faith in Christ will bear fruit to the glory of God as it pursues the purpose of bearing his image and the message to the world. 
A life of real faith in God then produces something that is visible to others. And without a doubt, they recognize God in that life. Jesus said it this way. Let your light so shine before men that others may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. Was not that exactly what the servant of Jonathan did? Whatsoever is in thine heart, do it all. Why? Because I know that that's not you. That's God talking in you. I see in you a faith that's going to lead us. And because of your faith, Jonathan, and my faith and your faith, we're going to have a great victory. And it came to pass. The fact of the matter is the true living faith, which the Holy Ghost installs into the heart, simply cannot be idle. And when it produces, it produces something for all to see and to take note of. That's the faith that continues. That's the faith that God desires in our life. Lastly, that continual faith is obviously growing. It's growing. It doesn't stay the same. First Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Paul wrote a letter to the church the first time. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye notice, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. And then guess what? It happened. Because he writes back in the following letter in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. Notice, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet. Listen, because that your faith groweth exceedingly. You see that? And the charity of every one of you uh, all toward each other, other aboundeth. So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. What were these people? They received the word of God. They started out and they didn't decline. It developed. In fact, it developed so courageously that everywhere Paul went, nobody could be witnessed to. They had already been witnessed to. Paul had already gone and looked for someone that hadn't been told the gospel. But this church had so developed the faith and a love for one another and others that they went everywhere. What was that? They were witnessing. They had saw, wow, this is a productive faith. And it was growing exceedingly again and again. We understand that people go through cycles of life that include tragedy and trial and victory. Each of those conditions are designed by God and ordained to give us, listen, experience with him. Experience. Let me ask you a question. What kind of experience do you really have with God? What kind of experience? Do you really have with God? Let, let me rephrase it. When's the last time you had an experience? I don't mean like, you know, you were sitting and meditating all of a sudden rainbow colors and everything started. I, don't, I mean, I don't mean experience like that. I mean that you had an experience of faith with God. I will tell you when it was intended to be. When you lost your job. When something une- unexpected happened in your life. When a relative turned on you, when a friend backstabbed you. When someone tried to posture you in a negative light at work. When you and your spouse couldn't see eye to eye and you had a blow up. A death. A life. You know what God was trying to do? He was trying for you to have an experience of faith. One that required a greater faith. One that required a courageous faith. They said, Lord, I I don't understand all this, but whatever happens, I'm not moving. Whatever happens, I'm not changing my opinion about you and about how much you love me and about who you are and the will of God. I will not be moved. I put the Lord always before me. Therefore, I shall not be moved. That's what he wants in our experiences. I can safely assume that if you are living by faith and you have lived like Jonathan, then it's been awesome. Because the Bible declares in Job 17 verse 9, the righteous also shall hold on his way and he that hath clean hands shall be led, listen, stronger and stronger. What is that? By every step on the road to glory, I'm going to become stronger and stronger. How? By the experiences that I have with God. 
This kind of faith begins with being saved by grace through faith alone. And I will say this. If you're not born again, if you don't know for sure today, if you were to die, that you'd be in heaven, you've not even begun by faith. You cannot experience God in the trials and tragedies of life until first you are triumphant over sin and death in the grave. But I will tell you this. From that moment that Jesus saves you until the moment that he claims you as he did Pat this uh, last night and he went on to be to heaven, I will tell you, but from the moment you're born again till the moment that you die to be with Jesus, that it's supposed to be a walk of faith. It's supposed to be a life that is unselfishing, unselfishly trusting in God. In April 1988, the evening news reported on a photographer who was a skydiver. He had jumped from a plane along with numerous other skydivers and filmed the group as they fell and opened their chute. On the film, uh, on the film shown on the telecast that night, as the final skydiver opened his chute, the picture went berserk. The announcer reported that the cameraman had fallen to his death, having jumped out of the plane without his own parachute on. It wasn't until he reached for the absent ripcord that he realized that he was free falling. Without the parachute. You see, listen, until that point in the photographer's life, the jump probably was exciting and fun. Thrill of a lifetime. But tragically, he had acted with thoughtless haste and deadly foolishness. Nothing could save him at that point. Nothing could save him because his faith was in a parachute that he never put on. Faith in anything but an all-sufficient God can be equally as tragic spiritually. Only with total faith in Jesus Christ should we even contemplate to step into the dangerous excitement we call life. The just shall live by faith. Contrasting faith. Declining or developing. Which one do you have? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we collectively agree. We ask that you would increase our faith and help us and forgive us for our unbelief. No one should leave here today, God, without without the parachute of faith strapped onto their soul. And I pray that if there is one here today that is lost, that today would be the day that they get it settled and they're saved. I pray for every Christian here today, God, that we would analyze and examine our own faith. And Lord, with sincerity as when we were singing as the deer panteth for the water, that we would confess to you where our faith is in light of where our faith should be. And God, I glory in the fact that there may be people here today that are completely justified in their faith. Lord, they're, they're, they're living the high life of faith. And, and, and there, are, there are no struggles that have to do with their faith. But, but for some of us, Lord, perhaps there are places in our life where we've not exercised that faith in your perfect will for us and in your plan for us and the progress of our faith. And I pray for those of us who need to do business with you today that we will. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to have Jenna begin to play. And as she does, I wonder, I wonder if you need to do business with the Lord.